Toby Hoddokes, who's round slightly longer than usual, but that's because this interviewee was fantastic and, dare I say it, indomitable. Well, I'm very fortunate to be in a beautiful house in lovely Bath. I've been made the guest of uh, somebody who directed some of the finest hours of Doctor Who, so I'm going to ask him who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Well, my name is Rodney Bennett, and I directed three Doctor Whos, which I can tell you. Uh, The uh, Sontaran Experiment, the Ark in Space, and the Mask of... Mandragora. And the Sontaran experiment was, uh, you weren't on the DVD for that, so I feel duty-bound to uh, to pick your brains about that, even though I've actually covered it in this podcast with uh, Glyn Jones early on, but the director is always the worst. Now, it was a rare thing of being an outside broadcast, and not on film, but on videotape. Would you have preferred to have done it on film, or were you happy with the look of video? Uh, well, it, from a technical point of view, it would have been very much easier to do it on film. Um, it, technically, at the time, it was a real tour de force for the engineers because we were uh, working on Dartmoor uh, in uh, appalling weather. And in those days, the uh, outside broadcast cameras were enormous. They were the same size as huge studio cameras. And they were connected to the mobile studio, or scanners, it was called, uh, by uh, a cable, an umbilical cord, which was um, very large and very heavy. And there were times when the engineers had to get the cameras when they were up on the rocks at a, at a particular tour called Hound Tour on Dartmoor. Um, I would say well over a quarter of a mile. They were absolutely at the limit of what they could possibly do at the time. So technically it was an absolute tour de force. Um, And I suppose it did impact on how we were able to do it in the sense of um, the uh, camera work. Um, But looking at it today, it's, it's not too creaky. Um, the only thing which creaks is the um, uh, there was a, was a sort of robot mm. which had to unfortunately I know in the in the minds of the writers it was it was a, like a hovercraft. That's okay. It's, I'm telling you before about some pancreas. A, 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 a clock Sorry. is nothing. <laughs> I meant to switch it off before we started. That's all right. And of course, because it's twelve, you got they got the whole lot. Um, the writers uh, had in their mind that it would that it was like a hovercraft, but of course that wasn't possible. So it had to run on rails, and because of the uh, ground on Dartmoor, which is not flat, mm. um, there was there had to be a lot of building up of you know the, the rails. So, but it it meant that the runs with the um, of this robot were really quite short. And I suppose that is, is a bit sort of obvious today. But Then again, if you'd done it on CSO, it would have probably looked 
very obvious oh, as well in terms of oh, the fringing. Yes, it would have been impossible. That's right. Yes, yes, because CSO um, work at that time was yes a bit like that. You could see the the uh, outline. Yeah. So it was really the only way we could do it. Uh, well, and uh, uh, in terms of a production, it was the, the first sort of proper block where Philip Hinchcliffe was on his own as producer, having yes. taken over from Barry Letts, who made a very family-friendly, some would say quite cosy show. Yes. And Philip Hinchcliffe and Robert Holmes turned up to in something altogether slightly more edgy. adult, yes. edgy. And, yes. uh, I mean, was, yes, was there yes. a, certainly a feeling that you were trying to do that, you were trying to make the show gutsier? Um, well, one went with the script, you know. So I wasn't aware that we were making it uh, at the time, that we were sort of setting out to make it gutsier. If, if it worked out that way, then that's because of the scripts. Um, the uh, Santaran experiment, the, I mean, the, my overriding memory of the Santaran experiment was um, a, the cast arriving the day before to do some rehearsal in absolutely appalling weather and we had to take them all off to a local fishing shop and rig them out in, in wet weather gear <laughs> so that they could at least um, do some rehearsal in this, in this absolutely appalling weather. I mean, the, you don't see it. I mean, this is a great advantage of working on, on video or digital uh, that um, the, the rain was horizontal it was being blown horizontal and was at times strobing in the cameras. But magically, the engineers could sort of um, minimise this and you're not aware of the weather at all when you watch it. No. And uh, that's why Sarah Jane in it is running around in this yellow uh, uh, outfit because she liked it. Um, the others, you know, only used, used it for rehearsal. But we cleared this... this shop out of all their wet weather gear. <laughs> oh, and so and then it turned into Sarah's costume. Yes, it did. Oh, wonderful. Well, one thing that... And the other thing, of course, was... Sorry to interrupt yeah. this. Was um, uh, very early on, poor Tom slipping on the rocks and breaking his collarbone, uh, which was a very nasty moment, especially for him um, and for the rest of us. But we were lucky. We had a very good stunt double with this Terry Walsh. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we didn't stop for very long. Tom was whisked away in an ambulance. Uh, and uh, and we, we carried on um, doing all the sort of movement shots, shots with, with Terry Walsh. And then when Tom was able to come back, propped him up against another rock. And for the lines, you know. Well, that's where the scarf came in handy as well. Yes, right. <laughs> so that wasn't a, wasn't a very nice... In fact, you can still see Tom in the... Because we did the Sontaran experiment first and then moved to the Ark in Space. Though, of course, in story order, it's, it's reversed. And you can see occasionally Tom holding that, his arm, not using it entirely freely. Yeah. Well, it's a painful break, I know, from a yes. bitter experience. So, Arkansas, so you've gone from the wet of uh, Dartmoor yes. to the studio of, yes. uh, of uh, the Ark in Space with a magnificent set you got there from yes. Roger Murray Leach. Well, it was very much Roger's idea or solution that, um, because the 
uh, script implied um, a huge um, space. And uh, my mind kept running on the use of mirrors and that sort of thing, because obviously a studio, I can't remember which studio we were in, um, I don't think it was the largest, which was known as TC1, it was probably TC3, which was a large studio. Um, but then Roger came up with this wonderful idea of building it up, building it vertically, or implying that it was vertically. Uh, and, uh, and this was wonderful. Yes, this is such a clever idea. The only um, difficulty that arose from that script, uh, that set, was that um, well, there were two two difficulties. One was that um, all the fronts of those um, where people are supposed to be um, in deep sleep um, was made of plastic, and in the heat, the plastic started to creak. So uh, it was quite a tricky job at times um, uh, removing all these, these creaks, uh, or as many as we could. But that aside, it was, um, it was a very clever idea. It was a lovely idea. There's a wonderful moment where Tom Baker owns Doctor Who, which yeah. is that speech he gives about yes. the sapiens. Yes, yes, I wish we could have got a camera even higher. Because then it, then, then it would have been like, you know, killing two birds with the same stone of, of, of Tom, as it were, um, taking on the whole human race and also being able to convey the size. But yeah. there was a limit, unfortunately, and the limit was the, the writing, lighting rig and... Higher than that, we couldn't go. And and how was he? Because this is very early on in his yes, tenure is. as the Doctor. Oh, it is. Yes. Well, I I always thought of Tom as a. I don't know if the names will mean anything to you or anybody else, but they did to me at the time. Of a wonderful mixture of Bert Lancaster and Groucho Marx and, and Harp, Harper Marx. Um, so that there was the kind of physical size and strength of Bert Lancaster, perhaps not quite the agility, but, and then that wonderful smile and childlike aspect of uh, Harper Marx, which seemed to be to be a wonderful sort of polarity or duality within Tom's um, Doctor Who, which was one of the reasons why I um, introduced him to the idea of a yo-yo in moments of stress um, because one of the things I particularly liked about Patrick Triton's Doctor Who was that in moments of great stress he would maddeningly sit down and play his penny whistle and you know it's like a great scientist somehow taking out from his pocket a um, a piece of string or, or a rubber band you, you know, the, yeah. like, like children have in their pockets and so I came up with this idea of Tom having a, having a yo-yo the only thing was that I always hoped that he would get very good at it <laughs> <laughs> and that I tried to uh, bring someone along to give him lessons but he 
Tom wasn't that sort of actor, really. So he, yes, he he became, he used it, but not with the not with the the skill that I always hoped. And he was uh, that that Tardis team of that that first year of Tom Baker is one that's very highly thought of, and sadly the the other two are no longer with us. Were Ian Martyr and Elizabeth Sladen. I so know. how were they? Well, start, uh, must uh, yes praise Elizabeth Sladen, who was. Amongst the gamest actors, I have to say, rather than actress these days, but amongst the gamest actors, I think that I, I ever worked with, um, because she was so often in a, a tight spot or um, grabbed from behind or imprisoned or whatever, but she did it with absolute conviction. No, she was. I, th- I think she was absolutely lovely and a perfect foil for uh, Doctor for the Doctor. Um, Ian Martyr, who's very quiet and um, both in himself and his character, but a lovely sense of humour, and he really did understand that sort of uh, the English understatement especially coming from someone you know who was in the in the in the navy in his in his case you know in the tightest of, of spots um, uh, he played the sort of understatement with a lovely sense of humor and uh, I, th- I thought he was an, a very um, clever choice to be you know a third member of that team and how would you go about casting guest cast? Did you cast people that you knew, or did you hold auditions? I mean, it's it... well, um, a bit of both, really. Um, here and there, there were people I cast people who I'd worked with before, though in totally different um, things. Um, for example, Wendy Williams in uh, the Arkham Space I had worked with some years before on Z cars. She's a Liverpool, uh, Liverpudlian, uh, and um, remembered her. And Kenton, I had worked with, um, again on another Z cars, but uh, playing, uh, I think, a police inspector. But that was ages ago. Um, the for the others in that show. Um, they were all new to me. So a mixture of people I knew and uh, then, you know, a lot of interviewing. And Because the lovely thing in those days, which doesn't exist so much these days, is the, the, that directors did their own interviewing and their own casting. Why do you it think that's changed? Uh, I, I, I don't quite know... Uh, in ITV, there were there were always people who who were called casting directors, not at the BBC, which was a, perhaps alone in um, uh, uh, in you know allowing directors to do their own casting. Um, uh, but why? I think there was a over, gradually. The uh, pre-production period for directors got cut down and cut down um, for 
I suppose, reasons of, of cost. But I think it's... Uh, I mean, directors aren't very expensive people, quite frankly. <laughs> and, um, and in their place came the rise of the casting directors. Just as it seems very odd to, to give a chef the ingredients with which to make his dish rather than let him choose them himself. Yes, of course directors ha- can have their say. And, um, and when I've worked with, which I have often with casting directors, they um, bring in maybe three or four contenders who they th- or people who they think might be contenders so one I've never been uh, faced with a fait accompli mm-hmm. so it's it's and I suppose it does cut down an awful lot of work because I remember spending hours at weekends um, going through all the letters that have come in from agents and um, and I always felt that you know if people have sent in all these um, suggestions, then it is up to the director to actually go through them and not just chuck them, as it were, to one side. Sure. Um, but it's very time-consuming. And uh, so, um, I don't know, swings and roundabouts, really, but I always enjoyed meeting people. And, and also meeting people who may not have been appropriate, but who you can store up for future use. Yeah. You never know. Yeah, sure. Yes, this well, could it's, happen. And certainly some, some people whose faces wouldn't have been in Spotlight, of course, were the Wirren because they were created in the BBC workshop. And you had to shoot those quite interesting because you couldn't shoot, you couldn't shoot their feet. No, 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 no. No, I mean, that's another of my uh, abiding memories of um, Doctor Who. Um, in rehearsal, um, there was no one else, so I, I had to perform the, the, the Wirren. <laughs> <laughs> which is ridiculous. I mean, a grown person going around making funny noises in a rehearsal room is just a... But there you are, that's Doctor Who, isn't it? <laughs> but it's true, yes. They we, you know, couldn't show their feet. Um, but they're very elaborate um, costumes. I guess one might have wished there could have been a bit more... I uh, don't know how to put it. They, they were rather dry. Uh, so a bit more glistening I mean, and... Yes. A bit. A yeah. bit more of the... Uh, yes. Viscous. Yes, that's the word. Yes. Well, you, co- you covered it all, really, with Doctor Who, because you did the outside broadcast, then you went inside to do Outer An Space. Old studio one. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and then you went on location, back yes. in time, period drama, yes. with The Mask of Mandragora. Well, by that stage... And uh, a continuing strand in my work had always been uh, classic serials. Um, quite a number of them. We, there was that wonderful strand of, of Sunday tea time classic serials for children, well, for families. And I did a number of those with great pleasure, um, as well as the ones for the, you know, in the evening. So I suppose... Because of all the costume work that I'd done, maybe that's why they asked, why Philip asked me to do The Mask of Mandragora. I don't know. Um, but when I read the script, I thought, we're not going to Italy, are we? <laughs> <laughs> and as when I put the question to Philip, he said, oh, no, 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 no. Um, but we may be able to uh, go to Port Merion. 
I'd never, been, of course, I knew the name, but I'd never been there. So Philip and I went off to this extraordinary place, Port Merriam, um, which, on the f a quick glance, um, seemed to offer uh, quite a lot. But once you start looking at it in, as with more detail, um, you realise that in fact um, there there are so many bits and pieces which are you know, combined to make the, the whole building, for example, that it's very difficult to find anything which would really stand up as Italianate, pure and simple. And the other difficulty is that it's all on a, on a slightly reduced scale. It's not um, life-size. Um, and so we had to be a bit careful where, where we placed people. But on the other hand, it was great fun uh, filming there, and I think it, generally speaking, it worked all right. It works. I was there earlier in the year and it, uh, for the first time, and it was only then that I realised how clever you'd been in shooting it, because, as you say, you move the camera slightly to the left, I and know, you've got a turquoise building with exactly. triangles on it or yes, something. I know. You know? <laughs> One had to be very careful, and um, uh, I think uh, Barry... Barry, Barry Newbury. Barry Newbury. Designer, yeah. Yes, who had worked with several times, um, was very good at obscuring things. And, of course, he, he built this entrance to, to the sort of catacombs. All, it's all, all polystyrene, you know. And, um, uh, and um, Clough Ellis was the man who designed all this. He was still alive at that time. He's a very old man. Um, but he, he joined us at lunch, I remember, one day. And uh, he was very insistent that we should leave it. He liked it. <laughs> so so I, I don't know if it's still there, but I shouldn't have thought so. It's probably blown away yeah, by polystyrene's that. not the hardiest, certainly. <laughs> uh, and it's, uh, it, I mean, it just strikes me as this sort of... It was a really cannily put-together production because it just strikes me that it's the sort of thing that the BBC and television at the time, and, and that includes actors and technicians, just did well. Well, there was so much experience and, um, yes, and talent in this direction. There's no doubt whatever. I mean, the costumes would, that Jim Atchison um, designed and put together would uh, grace any uh, feature film. Yeah, he did um, okay for himself in the end, didn't he? Yes. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, he was a, you know, a, a man of, of terrific talent. Um, no, there was such a lot, and, and the wigs were very good too. Uh, lovely wigs. Um, John Lorimore and the other abiding memory I have of, of that production is that we were in the studio and it, it, towards the end of the story, I think probably the fourth, fourth episode, and everybody is in, down in the, in the, in the catacombs including the, um, uh, the um, character Hieronymus Bosch, played on Norman Jones. And there he is, <laughs> in the studio, and every, with, with this uh, mask on, starting to emote. And he suddenly stops, and this figure says, I've dried. <laughs> and, it, and it absolutely brought the studio, you know, 
down. Uh, it was a wo- wonderful moment. I think I was probably the only one who didn't laugh because we were up against time. And when you're up against time, you don't really don't want <laughs> wonderful interregnums like that. <laughs> so it was a case of calling people to order as quickly as possible. But he, it was a wonderful moment. He was a great stalwart of Doctor Who. It was his last role in Doctor Who, of which he played three. He only died about three months ago, Norman. Oh, goodness. Uh, it, uh, I didn't know. Yes, wonderful, wonderful actor. Yes. Um, I mean, it's a great cast. John Lorimore. John Lorimore has some wonderful dialogue. Yes. Uh, um, well, I cast John Lorimore, really, um, I've seen him often on television, but uh, he kept reminding me of, there's a series of wonderful frescoes in, a, in Italy, in a town called Mantua, by a painter called Mantegna, uh, of... Uh, I think it's the Gonzaga family. And they all have these wonderful features. Um, and, uh, and it was that aspect of, of particularly of John, which made me think, that's perfect, that's really Italian. And, um, so and you've got two, two very handsome young leads who are often the more difficult parts, Giuliano yes. and Marco, well, Tim Pickett-Smith. I know, isn't it strange? I'd worked with Tim, his very first television, not long before, in a classic serial um, of North and South, not the latest, later one. This was also had a very early performance of, of um, Patrick Stewart, mm. a lovely actress called Rosalie Crutchley. But, I, and Tim came in and he, he, in that production, and he played, he only had one scene, and he came in and he just took the scene perfectly. He was obviously uh, an actor of, of you know, great quality. And he was very young. And so when Doctor Who came along, um, I, I don't know why I cast him as, as the companion rather than the young prince. Um, there must have been a good reason. Um, anyway, so Tim played that and Gareth um, Armstrong the other part, the, the young prince. Gareth's career has not blossomed uh, like like Tim's, and who knows why? Just uh, one of those things. The vagaries of the profession. I'm afraid it is, yes. But well, he's a nice man. Uh, yes, and he's done okay. He still, still oh, works. Oh, yes, 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 yes. I mean, I think Indeed. for an actor to still be acting... Forty years later is yeah, pretty good going. Pretty good going, yeah. Um, well, I probably, you know, I'm conscious of the time, and also I'm conscious of the fact that we do not want to confine ourselves to Doctor Who because with a career like yours, that would be um, uh, insane. So let's go right, go right back to the beginning. What, what, how, how did you end up being a director, and was that always going to be the case? Well, I, right, it was a roundabout uh, way it happened. Um, I'd always loved the theatre and did student theatre when I was at Cambridge and uh, at London um, and directing things and um, but I I started uh, at the BBC in radio not in drama but in the talks department as it was called at that time producing talks for uh, the home service as it was called and the third programme as it was called but then uh, BBC Two started, and they were desperate for people. And in those days, I don't know if it still exists, 
there was a system of, of being able to get an attachment to another department. And I got an attachment to, in television, in schools department, where I was as, as a producer-director. And I started to learn, as it were, if you like, the craft of um, directing cameras and uh, so on. Uh, and then, uh, a few years later, I got an attachment, because this is where I wanted to, if I could, end up. I got an attachment to what was then called Plays Department. And I remember I was arriving one probably Monday morning, sitting in the office of, of uh, an administrator who was the sort of organiser for the department, and clearly was uh, slightly at a loss to know what to do with this chap who suddenly appeared. And the phone rang, and I heard him say, Oh dear, oh, oh yes, oh, oh my goodness, well, well, I've got someone here who might be able to help. He put the phone down, and um, he said, uh, the director on this week's Z-Cars has gone sick. Would you like to do it? Would you like... So, you know, my... I gulped somewhat, and uh, I, I said, yes, of course. So, from Television Centre, I, I found myself walking down to the offices in Shepherd's Bush, and... Uh, I was in rehearsal at, we started rehearsal, I think, on Mondays at quarter to one. And we had two and a half days of rehearsal, and then we did night filming, I think, on Thursday. And we were in the studio on uh, Friday and Saturday, I think. Um, and under those conditions, I thought, well, I said to myself, you've got absolutely nothing to lose. <laughs> Because if if the sh if the show just goes out, um, you know everyone would be so relieved that they won't they won't sort of worry about whether it's any good or not. Um, anyway, it went out, and um, the head of serials department at that time s said, "Would you like to stay for another six months?" And I said, "Yes, please." And I so I stayed another six months, during which time I started to. Were, I did um, other programs in serials department, and also I, I did one or two um, short plays for a lovely man called Innes Lloyd. And he was a Doctor Who producer. Yes, he was. The day, yeah. And then he moved to, that's right, and then he moved to um, plays department, and he was producing a strand called 30 Minute Theatre, which went out live, uh, which was quite. <laughs> Uh, later on, it, they were recorded as live. Mm. You couldn't edit them. Um, and I did quite a number of those. Uh, and at the end of that six months, I decided that I would have to become a freelance. So I took a great chance. In, and that's how it... That's how it... So I, in a sense, I had no great formal training, except I was very lucky learning on the job. So why did you go freelance? Well, at that time, there were the the BBC was um, making all directors become freelance, and so if I was to stay in, it with drama work, 
I had to become a freelance. And uh, Innes Lloyd set me off with the promise of three 30-minute theatres. And then I was... I, don't know, I can't remember what I did after that. But I, I think I did a, one or two things in serials department. And, and, and then I was offered a classic serial of North and South. So... Yeah, because the thing that seems to dominate, I mean, a lot of Doctor Who directors seem to have, you know, stayed at BBC doing Doctor Who and then doing various other yes. sort of you know, pop bits of popular culture, half hours here and there. But you, you, you've done, you know, major classic serials and stuff on film. And yes, uh, I've been very lucky. I mean, it's so it's it's true that um, I have I have done you know a lot of uh, different things, um, and in commercial television, I was. Uh, you know, worked at Yorkshire Television, and uh, and also for there was a, a setup called Euston Films, where I I, I did a film at, for, for them, and uh, which was in fact the second time I worked with Danny Guinness. Was that Monsignor Quixote? Yes. I remember that, and then Liam McKern is in it That's as right, well. That's right. Yes, yeah. they made a wonderful pair. Yeah. Well, let's not forget as well, because you didn't sever your ties with the BBC, and when they were doing their, their major series of Shakespeare's, which one yes. do they trust you with? Well, Hamlet. Was, well, was, that's not I was bad. totally amazed by that. Totally amazed, because I'd never directed any Shakespeare before. And for Cedric Messina, who was, you know, this was the sort of really big stuff. Yeah. Um, and for Cedric Messina, I was on location, actually, with a, a lovely play which Innes Lloyd asked me to direct, called Gentle Folk. And that was another um, um, uh, digital cameras. But by that stage, they got smaller. But to be um, rung up by Cedric Messina and uh, offered um, Shakespeare, you know, uh, Hamlet was just mind-blowing. I couldn't believe it. And, I mean, the, the casts of all of those, you know, right down to the, the bottom, you know, you've got, you, you we, we're got major stars or, or certainly, you know, highly yes, regarded actors in pretty much yes, every part. Yes, we were very fortunate. Absolutely. And yes. Lala Ward with another Doctor Who connection as Ophelia. Well, yes. I interviewed, you know, I interviewed lots of young actresses for that, for that role. I, w- I was very... Um... um Keen, at one stage, on um, uh, Zoe Wanamaker, actually, who was, you know, younger then. And, and I thought she would go very well with Derek Jacobi. Um, uh, but uh, Cedric Messina didn't sort of, didn't really uh, respond to the idea, so it was back to the drawing board. And uh, Lala was, uh, was, was charming, I think. Uh, perhaps uh, I don't want to denigrate what she did but but a more sort of traditional reading of um, Ophelia than maybe what Zoe Bonnetmaker might have given it and um, and Cedric was determined that these uh, programmes or these productions would have a very long shelf life which was why when he was producing it, they had to be set in the period in which they were written and why we played a very full text and why the casting, in a sense, 
I mean, not not entirely. Um, but well, well, the casting sort of reflected that too. You weren't there to reinvent the wheel. You were there to no. to have a, a a representation of Shakespeare of done by the BBC. So, so, yeah. Yes, though my model for for the production, in my mind, was definitely um, uh, Nixon and Watergate, oh, okay. because there were, and so so Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are sort of like Dean and Holding. Uh, the young men, you know, the the acolytes are sort of going around. So, yeah, it was great. Well, the story, the story Lala Ward tells about that is Patrick Stewart berating her for wasting her talent by spending her time on a sci-fi series. So I suspect oh, he's he? probably forgotten that. Oh, <laughs> I had no idea. Oh, I had no idea. <laughs> and the other one, is, of course, that can't go without mentioning is that you are responsible for Catherine Zeta-Jones. Oh, Lord love us. Oh, Darling Buds dear. of May, what, less, yes, less, again, let's well, forget, you. one of the massive hits of television. Well, yes, yes, on that, you know, directors have never, never, never get to know very much after the event, and um, not in television. And it was only some weeks later that uh, I was in my local um, barber's having my hair cut, and it was a, one of the few opportunities where I could um, uh, peruse the, the tabloids. And so while I waited to have my hair cut, I picked up a tabloid. And there on the front of the, of the newspaper was Catherine and um, uh, Pam Ferris launching a ship. And I suddenly realised that it had to be a great success. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, how, I, how Catherine came about was... Uh, well, I was determined that we would have a pretty, a really pretty girl to play, play Mariette. And I met lots of very nice actresses. Um, but I was... Uh, none of them seemed really pretty enough to me. And the producers, there were two of them, uh, were uh, getting, found, getting rather tired of me and uh, wanted to sort of close it up and one day I decided that I would look through the whole of Spotlight, from beginning, Women's Spotlight, from beginning to end, including the quarter pages. You will understand what that is. Yes, indeed. But f just to explain, you know, all, uh, most of the pages are divided in half with a photograph and one or two things about the actors. And there are about three, each volume is about three to four. Uh, at that time, three to four inches thick. Um, and at the back of each, it's divided into sections of leading actors, or, uh, character actors, young actors, and so on and so forth. And at the back of each section are what are known as the quarter pages, which are usually people who are sort of semi-retired, but who still like to come along and do a day's work if it's, if it's there. The pages are divided into four and are therefore cheaper. So I decided one day that I would look through the whole of, of Women's Spotlight. I began at the A's <laughs> at about nine o'clock. I can't remember the time, but I think probably round about half six to seven. I was going through the quarter pages right to the very, at the very, very end. And there among the Zeds, I saw what looked like a holiday snap.
uh, of a very pretty girl. And uh, it took a little uh, um, convincing from the producers uh, that she was the one for the part because um, she had been in a musical, uh, but I don't think she'd done any television. Um, anyway, that's how she got the part. Well, that um, shows the perseverance she... plays off. <laughs> Always read to the back of yes, the and she walked, <laughs> it? She, for, for someone as, as and a young person as, as, as pretty as, as Catherine, she had the other quality which she had is uh, absolutely no side and with her feet on the ground and, and just a capacity to enjoy what she was doing. Well, and I've I've come with the jump-off point of Doctor Who, but you've done so much and you've had such a great career that there are many things that we haven't talked about. But if there was one thing instead of Doctor Who, perhaps, that was lining the DVD shelves and that kept coming back to haunt you, that you would go, but that was the job that I really thought I cracked it or that I enjoyed the most. What would, Is there anything that you'd choose? Oh, well, the job I enjoyed greatly was, was certainly Monsignor Quixote, filming um, in Spain with two, well, a, well, a wonderful cast of actors throughout and two very fine leading actors. That was enjoyable from beginning to end. One of the show which I suppose I should be proud of, that was a very uncomfortable show at the time, it was called The Lost Boys, which was three plays about um, J.M. Barry and, and, and a family called the Llewellyn Davis, and who... Uh, form the basis of Peter Pan, really. Yeah, with Ian Holm as... That's with Ian, and that was an extraordinary performance that Ian gave. Um, But casting all these boys from the age of sort of five and six upwards to young men, five of them, was um, quite a job. Is that why it was an uncomfortable production? Uh, Yes, and... uh, Yes. Um, we we can leave it there if you yeah. like. No, the boys were fine. They, 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 were, they were great. We took them all off to see a production of Peter Pan, I remember, uh, just so that we would all have the experience of seeing it. And, um, and I, I had one on my knees because it was just the production manager and myself. To, the parents didn't come. And uh, when... Um, when when Peter says to the audience, you know, do you believe in fairies? With one accord, all this row of boys of different ages, they all shouted out, no! <laughs> I just wanted to die at that point. <laughs> Oddly enough, that was the reaction in real life of the Llewellyn Davis boys. Oh, so they were in character. <laughs> no idea, but I don't know why they did. <laughs> well, look, I'm so grateful to you for giving your time and, and for That's showing okay. you such great hospitality. That's um, right. uh, we're naming a charity because the listeners oh, yes. are paying for this. Yes, yes. Action for Blind People. Please. So, uh, the last question, which you can answer as glibly or as seriously as you like, is that we are here because Doctor Who is 50 this year. So, what is your message to the listening Doctor Who fans out there? Oh, carry on watching. I'm sure that they will. And carry on listening. Listeners, I'll be back for another interview next time. But for this occasion, it's with great pleasure that I say, Rodney Bennett, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you. I hope that was okay for you. That was great.
Oh, I really enjoyed talking to Rodney and being a guest in his lovely home and uh, a, a receiver of the hospitality of both Rodney and his wife Jill. I'm so privileged uh, and grateful to be allowed into the houses of these very kind people who give me their time um, and in this case a lovely meal as well. Um, Rodney's charity Action for Blind People is as easy to find as you think. It's that. It's Action for Blind People, all one word, actionforblindpeople.org.uk. Anything that you can donate uh, in lieu of paying for this podcast would be gratefully received by that charity, I'm sure. My next interviewee had a lot to say, so much so that the clip I'm about to tantalise you with didn't actually make it into the finished programme. So it's a bonus extra before you've even heard it. Till next time. Did it involve um, like almost a deserted town? I think I got I think I got told off there because I, I I told the grandma to go and get some uh, distant bloodhounds going because I thought it would add to the. <laughs> And I was told off, I mustn't add things that we hadn't rehearsed. It's Saturday night tea time in 1977, all over again. It may be irrational of me, but human beings are quite my favourite species. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, The Fourth Doctor Adventures. Dear me, things don't seem to be going awfully well on Nerva. Fire! Getting a strange reading on the decon filter. Doctor? Nerva? Nerva? Don't let him in. And what on earth is that? Uh, well, I'm the doctor, this is Leela. And I would advise you all to keep back. <laughs> he needs to be quarantined. Leela. We're looking for a stolen spaceship. Ring any bells? You know this place? Well, I know her. Hello? Can you hear me? Doctor Who. Destination Nerva. Brilliant. Return to Nerva.